Every year in my town, there's this fantastic crafts in the park. It's always the day before Mother's Day, so it's fun to go and shop and get lots of cool stuff. At any rate, I came across One Earth Body Care, and it changed my life. Now, you may think I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm not. I am extraordinarily smelly, and I have tried every natural deodorant under the sun. Nothing has worked except for their fantastic natural deodorant. They have a variety of scents. They are non-greasy, cream-based formula, baking soda-free. Magnesium hydroxide keeps odor at bay, and let me tell you, it sure does. Organic and gentle, and they have wonderful, enchanting essential oil aromas. My favorite is vanilla rose, there's vanilla spice, lavender lime, lemongrass, cedar, sage. They also have wonderful shampoo bars, changed my daughter's life. Her hair looks amazing and conditioner bars. They have wonderful salves for dry skin and so much more. So please check them out at oneearthbodycare.com. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog, Benji, Yumwoof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. I just read a fantastic book. I urge all of you to run out and get it. It is with the wonderful Elizabeth A. Stanley, PhD. I'm going to call her Liz because she said that's what she prefers, but her name is Elizabeth A. Stanley, PhD. The book is Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Liz, or so you prefer Liz over Dr. Stanley? Absolutely, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me today. It's so great to be here. Liz, I was immediately sucked into your book because I love when people share their personal experiences. I have a book out currently and we throw out the book, our memoir stories. And I think when you can do that, it's so relatable and it really grabs you in. You, you talk about being, uh, getting your PhD, working on your dissertation, just going, 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 and then puking on your keyboard and still going, 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 going. <laughs> and uh, let, tell us a little bit more, but don't give away too much because people have got to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I it was a big choice about whether to include so much of my story. And I ultimately decided I had to because I needed readers to understand that there is nothing that I write about or that I teach about that I haven't learned from in my own mind and body. It's backed by science and empirical research, but the stories, my stories and other stories make it relatable. I come from a long family history of uh, military service. um, And as a result, uh, I came from intergenerational trauma and experienced a 
a pretty traumatic childhood myself, and then shock trauma when I was in military service. Um, while I was deployed in Bosnia, I had a near-death experience and um, sexual violence. I left the military actually as a whistleblower and had to deal with that. And so there's all of these things that I had gone through and um, my way of dealing with it was the way that's often socialized in our culture, which is just to keep pushing, to power through. And there were costs with that. Eventually my body just said no. And you shared the story that I opened the book with. I was trying to finish my dissertation on deadline. I'd been working seven days a week all summer long to try and get this thing done and 16 hours a day. And early one morning in August, I got up, I booted the computer up, I you know, sat down, I was halfway through the first sentence and I puked everywhere. Um, it was destroyed and I just didn't even have time to think about it or reflect on why did my body just do that? Instead, I got in the car, I drove to the store and I bought a new keyboard and kept writing. And you know, I think for those of us who have these patterns, it sometimes takes a really big uh, warning shot um, or a frying pan upside the head in my case. Um, I lost my eyesight. That was kind of the, the, the worst of where it went. And it forced me to realize that I had to learn how to deal with stress in a different way. And I shared some of those lessons um, in this book and in the resilience program I designed. You know, when you talk about widening your window, you're talking about widening your window to tolerance, uh, to the stress arousal, right? Because we are, there is so much stress all the time bombarding us. Some of us have, have, have had severe childhood trauma or trauma in the military. And even if you've just had, you know, the regular ups and downs of life, if you have, if you don't widen your window and you have a narrow window, you're not going to deal with it as well. So talk to us about how, how, what it means to widen our window. And then what do you do if you have a narrow window and you're having trouble getting it a little open? I use the metaphor of the window to talk about our, each of our individual tolerance to stress arousal. And when we're inside our window, we can keep all of our thinking brain functions online. We can make good decisions. We can access choice. It's the place where our behavior can be intentional and we can match um, our behavior with our values and goals. And when we're inside our window, we also are much better able to connect with other people, um, to give and receive social support, even during stressful situations. So everyone's window is a different width. And importantly, our window can change. It can narrow and it can widen. You know, resilience isn't this thing we either have or we don't. Resilience can be learned. And the process of widening our window, and we can talk about that today, um, helps us to be able to tolerate more stress, to function better during uncertainty, to be more flexible when curveballs get thrown at us um, and adapt when our, our plans get interrupted. Um, there are three ways that we can narrow our window, and I talk about that in the book. The first is, you know, our, our windows are initially wired in childhood through our social interactions with our parents and other people that we have constant contact with in childhood. That's what initially wires our window. And for those of us who come from um, families with parents who had narrow windows, we were more likely to wire narrow windows ourselves. That's what happened in my case, and I've seen it happen in many of the people that I've trained. 
Um, so that's one way the window can be narrowed through childhood adversity and through having parents that had narrowed windows through intergenerational effects. The second way we can narrow a window is when we um, experience a shock trauma event, those, those big events that we all recognize as traumatic, things like car accidents or terrorist attacks or unfortunately mass shootings in schools or war or rape. Those are big shock traumas to the system. But the thing that I think many people don't understand and I didn't even really understand until I started digging into the empirical evidence and research is that we can narrow our window, even if we've had none of those other things, just everyday life can narrow our window. Not getting enough sleep, chronic sleep deprivation is a huge window narrower. Um, chronic uh, tension in our close relationships at work or in school, at home, you know, being the victim of being bullied, um, being on the receiving end of discrimination or social exclusion or racism or sexism or even poverty, all of these things can narrow, window, narrow our window in the third way. And many of us don't recognize or understand that. And so we aren't taking the active steps we need to recover from it and then widen our window. Now, Liz, I probably should have asked you to define this originally, but there's a thinking brain and there's a survival brain and they, they, they act differently. And sometimes a thinking brain can be a bit too dismissive and make it hard for the survival brain to recover from trauma. I found that fascinating. We do have these two brains and I use that, the terms thinking brain and survival brain in the book to help explain how we actually are making decisions on two different tracks. Um, the economist Daniel Kahneman calls this thinking fast and thinking slow. Um, many people might be familiar with his very popular book. But the thinking brain is responsible for this thinking slow, our very deliberate, conscious decision-making and reasoning and ethics and speech. And we know that the thinking brain is active whenever we hear that inner voice in our head thinking to us, talking to us, that inner commentary is the thinking brain in action. Um, the survival brain is the evolutionarily older parts of our brain, um, the limbic system, the cerebellum and brainstem. And the survival brain is the thinking fast part of our brain. It's constantly going, it's automatic, it's unconscious, it's very fast, and it is entirely geared to help us rapidly appraise threats, respond to them, and then recover afterwards. So we can't hear the thinking brain talking to us. It, it isn't verbal like, I mean, the survival brain. It isn't verbal like the thinking brain is. Instead, we can know when what's happening in our survival brain by looking in our bodies. Um, the survival brain talks to us through our physical sensations and our emotions. And so it, many of us haven't been trained to pay attention to our physical sensations and emotions. I certainly hadn't been when my survival brain made me vomit all over the keyboard. I mean, that was a very big signal from my survival brain. I had no idea what was going on. So because we have been trained to pay attention to our thinking brains, those beliefs, the thoughts, the narrative in our head, um, we tend to listen to the thinking brain's understanding about an event not the survival brain's understanding of the event, but it's the survival brain that's deciding whether we're turning stress on and it's the survival brain that's deciding whether we turn stress off and recover. So let me give an example for this. 
Um, and I hear this all the time. People will make these comparisons. Oh, I haven't had, you know, I haven't been in combat. I haven't dealt with a rape. I haven't dealt with childhood adversity. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just dealing with everyday garden variety, you know, time pressure and deadlines at work. And that's no big deal. I can handle that. So that's a thinking brain understanding of the situation. But that is also devaluing and writing off whatever the survival brain might be feeling about it. And in fact, the survival brain might be feeling really anxious or angry or upset or afraid. And when we write it off with some of these thinking brain narratives, we actually are making our stress worse. Yeah, exactly. And I think so many of us do that. And, and one of the things that was interesting, I watched your talk that you gave at Google, which was fantastic. You were talking about that if, if someone is trying to power down, they want to relax their mind and body and it won't go there, their mind's still racing, they're stuck in a high place and there's sleep issues. That's a sign that your thinking brain is hampering your survival brain. So if you're like, no, everything's fine, but then you're getting frequent colds and your heart's racing and you're not sleeping, you have to pay attention to those signs. Absolutely right. The survival brain has to communicate with us somehow. And in fact, when our thinking brain is dismissing what's going on in the survival brain, when it's trying to write it off as no big deal, the survival brain finds that extra threatening because its message is not getting through to you. And that's when it will amp up even more. That's when we'll get even you know, a bigger wave of emotion. That's when the sleep problems will really intensify. That's when we might start having panic attacks. And these two end up in a very adversarial relationship. And over time, that's what leads to just a whole variety of symptoms that all of us are struggling with, you know, chronic pain, depression, constant worry, weight gain, sleep problems, as you said, um, a variety of different physical illnesses, depressed immunity, which leads to frequent colds. And I was exhibit A of all of those things. Um, and it took me understanding how this worked scientifically to help me not take it so seriously and personally anymore. Like still took it seriously, but it was not, it was not that I was somehow wrong or broken. It was that my neurobiology was out of whack because I wasn't aware of what was would help it be in balance. And as soon as I understood that, it just helped to take away all the shame and self-judgment I had. And that's why I include as much science as I do in the book so that readers can also understand, oh, this is why I do what I do. This is why my body's acting this way. And then they won't take it quite so personally when they're going through recovery too. Yeah. And the problem is that our society perpetuates this. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on Dunkin' yes. Donuts, but America runs on Dunkin'. Yeah. The coffee, <laughs> the sugar. And, Especially Boston. Right? Oh, they're on every corner. I'm like, what the heck? This is insane. But, you know, I used to, so, so what I'm getting to is, is that the coping habits, which you talk about, and they, they can work for a while, but eventually you're going to crash. So I used to work with a woman and every day she would come in and she would have donuts for breakfast, for, you know, donuts for breakfast. And then like the biggest cup of coffee I'd ever seen. And yes, I'm a bit of a wow. food snob, but I was more concerned of like, okay, so you're going to eat all that sugar and then you're going to crash, but then you're going to have all that coffee to keep you going. But yet this is not going to last. This is not a good formula for health and, and uh, feeling good. And, and I think so many of us just do that. And then again, like I said, the society just encourage us to, encourages us to do this. 
Yes, our society has this very strong value about always being on, always going, always being productive. And we have developed an amazing ways to kind of feed that. And, you know, I don't think we think of caffeine as an addiction, but it is. Um, and, you know, it's just typical. Everybody gets up and drinks a lot of caffeine. They might also add nicotine into that mix. As you pointed out, they add sugar. All of these things mobilize energy kind of artificially so that if we're even chronically sleep deprived, we won't necessarily know it because we've been pumping ourselves with all this artificial energy stimulation. But then we do have crashes. And the longer we've been doing it, the bigger the crash is going to be. Well, jump into the resilience uh, training. There's two big principles upon which um, MFIT, that's the abbreviation MMFT, and we pronounce it MFIT, um, is based. The first one is that when our survival brain perceives us to be helpless or powerless or lacking control, it is much more likely to turn on traumatic stress so that we have trauma instead of just regular stress. And so the antidote to that is to be able to train yourself to be able to find choice, to access agency in any situation. When we can access agency, we're much less likely to experience trauma. So that's one principle that it's built on. The second principle it's built on is the idea that where we are choosing to direct our attention, whether it's conscious or unconscious, but where we choose to direct our attention is going to have tremendous ripple effects for our survival brain, for our autonomic nervous system, and for our bodies. And you know, most of us aren't paying attention to where our attention is being drawn. And so we're having all of these constant ripple effects that might not be so beneficial for our bodies. Like, give me an example of that. So say someone has a constant habit of worrying. They're just, uh, you know, they're always planning their to-do list. They're always worrying about what's happening next. And this is just kind of the constant music in their mind. When they're having that kind of um, a pattern and their mind is constantly churning on what's coming next, and, the t then, and their attention is being directed that way, that is rippling down to their survival brain, which is perceiving that as threatening because, oh my goodness, there's all this to do. And when the survival brain does that, then it turns on stress arousal. And then they start having the physical sensations that come along with anxiety. So by directing their attention that way, even unconsciously, this can be entirely unconsciously, it is turning stress on without ever turning it off for their body. And that leads to a tremendous you know, effect. Chronic stress arousal has all kinds of detrimental effects for us. So instead, if someone bec can become aware that their mind is in this constant racing, worrying pattern and can disengage their attention from that and instead direct their attention to something in the present moment that is more grounded, more stable, um, like you know, directing their attention to calming music or directing their attention to seeing you know, a beautiful blue sky, or the one that, that we always start with in, in MFIT, directing their attention to the sensations of contact between their body and their surroundings. So like the heaviness and weightedness of their butt in the chair. I know this is strange, but when you direct your attention to the sensations of contact, 
it is an immediate like swaddling for the survival brain. It helps the survival brain realize, oh, okay, I'm grounded. I'm stable right now. And when the survival brain does that, it stops turning the stress on um, and it sets the body into a place so that we can start recovery. So it really comes down to where we direct our attention. And MFIT teaches how to do that and how to use attention as a way to help the survival brain recover from prior stress and trauma. And that's how we widen our window over time. Oh, that's incredible. Okay. I'm going to work on that for myself and also work on that with my daughter. One of the things that uh, you talk about as well is stress and emotion contagion. Tell us about this. Yes. So because we talked a little bit before about how we are wired to connect, um, how we get wired initially in childhood, um, because of that social wiring that we're wired to connect, um, we will pick up on um, either if someone near us is very regulated and calm, we'll pick up on that and that will help us to downregulate if we happen to be anxious or upset. But if we're not paying attention, we can often pick up on stress and emotions from other people. Stress and emotions are contagious and they're most contagious in the relationships with our attachment bonds. So with our parents, our children, or our romantic partners. And stress and emotions are also really contagious in relationships where we have power differences, like from teacher to student or boss to you know, subordinates in the office, or critically, leaders to their population. Um, we don't just have an individual window. In the last chapter of the book, when I talk about how the neurobiology of, of this Wired to Connect works, I talk about how we also have this collective window. So a group can be more or less resilient together. And a lot of that comes down to the, you know, the if the leader has a wide window or the teacher in the classroom has a wide window, they are conveying self-regulation and resilience to the people around them. But conversely, if the leader or teacher or therapist or parent has a narrow window, they're going to be conveying, often conveying hyper-aroused or hypo-aroused emotions and stress to people around them, and then they'll be picking up on that. So it isn't just our own resilience that's affected by what we choose to do with directing our attention. It's also affecting the resilience of the people around us. You know, this is embarrassing because I, you have an amazing bio and uh, I just brought you right in. I was so excited, but I want to talk about your being a certified practitioner of somatic experiencing a body-based trauma therapy. I also want to mention that uh, Elizabeth Stanley, PhD, is an associate professor of security studies at Georgetown University. She is a creator of mindfulness-based mind fitness training, MMFT. You've taught to thousands in civilian and military high-stress environments. You've been featured on uh, this researcher, MMFT research, has been featured on 60 Minutes, ABC Evening News, NPR, Time Magazine, and many other media outlets. You're an award-winning author, U.S. Army veteran. Thank you for your service. You hold degrees from Yale, Harvard, and MIT. Okay, my gosh. I, I told my husband, like, I'm, oh, my God, this woman's brilliant. I'm going to sound like such a dummy. I mean... <laughs> She's amazing. Um, but let's talk about uh, somatic experiencing. Yes. So MFIT draws um, from two different skills training lineages. One is mindfulness skills training. And mindfulness is kind of really well known everywhere right now. So I don't need to say anything about that. 
The other is it draws from these concepts and skills from body-based trauma therapies. I'm certified in somatic experiencing. That might be the, the best known of these. Um, sensorimotor psychotherapy is another. Um, the Hakomi effect is another. But these techniques work not with the thinking brain. They're really all about helping, to, helping the survival brain to be able to appraise safety um, and then to help re-regulate the nervous system and body to be able to recover from prior stress and trauma. Because when we've had traumatic experiences, the survival brain um, encodes kind of corrupted memory that leads us to then have, we can be easily triggered by cues that relate to that event later on. And the survival brain also gets coded in ways that it will turn on default defensive strategies in situations where they might not be appropriate. So it really takes some work to help rewire the survival brain. The lovely thing about somatic experiencing or any of these other body-based trauma therapies is they're completely different from thinking brain therapies. So you're not going in to have a conversation and talk about what's going on. You're going in to work with someone who's going to be watching your mind and body, watching them go through arousal and discharge cycles, and they'll direct your attention for you to help your mind and body do that. By taking these techniques and understanding the science behind it, like as I've written it out and widened the window, someone can do that for themselves. They don't necessarily have to go to a somatic therapist. It can be very helpful to go to a somatic therapist if they are experiencing a lot of symptoms. Um, the somatic therapist can be really efficient in helping guide them through recovery. But all we need to do, I mean, it, we're innately wired to do this. It's just many of us have been blocking it. We've been trained to block it. And so understanding how to support the survival brain do recovery, that's what it's all about. And with understanding the science and having the tools to direct your attention through these exercises, someone can do that for themselves. That's incredible. You know, sadly, I know too many women who were sexually abused as children and their window is narrow and they've had to work really hard to widen it. It sounds like this body-based trauma therapy could be really helpful. It absolutely could. You know, I have a history of childhood sexual abuse and and that wired my brain in a particular way. It's it, it's it is what it is, right? And but it, it did wire my survival brain in a particular way that I, um, in some ways, I, I talk about the book. I, I felt when I was in my 20s and my teens and 20s, I thought of myself as a trauma magnet because I kept finding myself in these situations. And it was very much an unconscious echo from the survival brain. That's kind of how trauma reenactment works. And so for those of us who started with abuse early in life, it can have this lifelong trajectory if we're not aware of it. And learning how to redirect our attention to show our survival brain that we have the capacity to recover. Like at a micro level, we can show ourselves that. And that's what heals the survival brain. That's what allows it to rewire so that we can have different responses to stress and trauma now as adults. You know, I did talk therapy for probably three or four years, four years before I found somatic-based therapies. And, you know, the talk was great. It helped me think it through, but it did not help my system recover. It, it took 
experiencing um, some of these nonverbal modalities, EMDR, somatic experiencing, for my system to really begin to start doing that rewiring. And I knew that that was, for me, the missing piece. And that's why those techniques got integrated into MFIT. Yeah, I'm so glad they did because I've done talk therapy and I can just talk and talk and, just, you know, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't seem to help. Although it's funny because I am in talk therapy. I said it doesn't seem to help, but I did go back because just for like kind of maintenance, like I've dealt with a lot of the like really big traumatic things um, through something called bioenergetic therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you I'm get not. really into your body. It's fantastic. and And so it's, I've described it before on the show. It, it, it sounds kind of weird, but you put yourself in these sort of uncomfortable postures. And as the pain, it's kind of not in a dangerous way. Like you're not pulling your muscles. But for example, like you're standing, you bend over, you touch your toes, but then you, you just let yourself hang and you get this intense shaking in your thighs and your hamstrings start to loosen. And it, it, it's really weird, but it kind of helps you kind of go deeper into your body. And I was able to, like, I would fall to the floor about, like, when my mom died when I was in my 20s, I cried, but I was devastatedly crying, like, just happened. I mean, the stuff that I was holding in was was huge. And so it really, so that really helped me. So I got through a lot of the trauma in that. And now I feel like, okay, with the challenges of having a special needs child and and some career things and looking at, you know, whatever was going on in my life, I can do talk therapy. But for the big stuff, I think you need to do some kind of body therapy. Yes, I fully agree. And it's great that you mentioned the shaking. I mean, it's interesting. None of us were taught um, growing up, unless maybe we had a somatic therapist as a parent, that you know, how the body does discharge stress activation and complete recovery, it looks kind of strange. And most of us weren't taught what those things were. And so we often will override it and block it. But shaking is a classic one. Yawning, crying, waves of heat, tremors, um, itching, coughing. Um, There is just a range of different things that we don't think of as actually helping move our system back into balance but they are. And so beginning to identify them and then help the system to, you know, tolerate letting it happen because it can be uncomfortable to let all that shaking happen. Yeah, it can. Um, but it needs to happen. That is that is the way that our systems are wired to be able to re- to recover. Well, I'm going to be sending your book to so many friends of mine who have experienced trauma and extreme trauma and then friends who just have your everyday trauma or everyday ups and downs, because I really think it's incredible. And I love the science. I think it's so good that you put it in there. I like that you share other people's experience. There's a guy named Julio in the book you talk about. I mean, there's so much to talk about. You have to come back because (laughs) this is so important. And, you know, I would love to see a book about the dangers of uh, over pushing your kids. Yes. Um, you know, I live in a, ta- I live in a, a, an upper class town of just tiger moms and I am not one. And even if my daughter was neurotypical, that's just not my thing. And I see all these kids that just like, they're pushed so hard and they have so much homework and they have, you know, they have to go to activity, to activity, to activity. And they, there's no downtime to just be a kid. And I read studies that say, these are the kids that end up anxious and depressed. And, and you, it just, bothers me. So I thought, wow, I'd love to see if Elizabeth <laughs> or Liz wrote a book, you know, saying, come on, parents, let's, you know, I mean, I'm not saying you can't push your kids at all, but there's got to be a limit. There does need to be a limit. I mean, the way that we grow our window is we have to experience something that takes us outside our comfort zone, but then we have some recovery. And when we 
constantly pushing or being pushed, recovery isn't happening. And then they show up in my Georgetown classes and they are wrecks. The the depression and anxiety is through the roof. Um, They just have never had time to just have free time and to allow their system to fully recover. And, you know, it's, it's become this vicious cycle in our society and technology in some ways makes it worse because all of the access that we constantly have to the electromagnetic spectrum, that also amps our survival brain up. And so it's just this constant going and no stopping. Um, I'm, I really would love to see uh, our society take a step back and realize that we are on this collision course. Yeah, we are. Well, that's why we are very lucky to have your book, Wide in the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Because again, there's no time to recover. And that's what's so key. Liz, you're my new favorite person. I think you're absolutely fantastic. I'm just in awe of your brilliance and your heart and you're sharing your story. I'll have to send you my book uh, because I, I think you'll like the memoir portions. And I just, I love when people are open and honest and really put themselves out there to help other people. So tell us all the ways we can get your fantastic book and learn. Absolutely. So you can get my book anywhere. Um, it's here and abroad, the links to different places to buy it. You can get on my website. My website is www.elizabeth-stanley.com. And if you join my mailing list, you can also get the first exercise in the MFIT sequence. It's called the exercise. It's only five minutes long. It's an audio file. Put it on your phone. You can use it anywhere. Um, And I am in the middle of developing an online version of MFIT. I'm working with Sounds True. And filming it in January, in fact. And it should be ready for people to access um, starting late summer or early fall, like September. Um, Best way to know about and get the link for that is also to be on my mailing list. And we'll be putting some information up on on my website about that soon as well. Um, So between the book, which gives you the science, um, the first two most important exercises for re-regulating the mind and body are in the book. And you'll have the audio file for one of them so you can start practicing um, five minutes a day, it really makes a big difference. If you want to do more, that's great. But even just five minutes a day can make a tremendous difference in helping to re-regulate our minds and bodies. Oh, you are just fantastic. Really. I'm just so thrilled you came on the show. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe and follow me at Lisa Davis, MPA. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis, MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.